0: You are listening to the Hoops Fix Podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix Podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. I was particularly excited about this show um, because it is a uh, person and story that is something that I would love to emulate and something that I've looked up to for a long time. Um, we had Roger Hosanna in the studio. Roger is responsible for Hosanna Sportswear. Um, it was the uh, British basketball brand uh, growing up for me. You know, I remember I say it in the podcast, but I remember going into into Foot Locker and being able to to buy the product off the off the shelves. Um, and the things that he did as an independent, um, whether it was the product, whether it was the events, um, the level of sponsorship that he raised, um, the business that he built, uh, is hugely inspiring um, and something that I would, you know, love to do myself uh, one day. So, it was it was awesome to get him in and kind of dissect the story and get him to uh, go into detail about the the backstory, you know, why he set up the brand, um, how big it got, uh, and why unfortunately it, it sort of came to a close, and then potentially. Um, potential developments for the future so yeah it was super interesting and uh, I think that you will uh, enjoy it especially if you were deeply entrenched in the basketball scene um, back then before we get into the show, a quick mention for our Patreon account, we are over 40 supporters now, um, that are donating every single month to help support our work we are trying to become 100% uh, financially independent and sustainable by coming directly to you, our audience, and asking if you can give a very small amount of money every single month to help us do the work that we do. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash there you can sign up to give as much or as little as you'd like every single month to help support the work that we do, and we will forever be indebted to you. Anyway, um, here is this week's show If you're listening on iTunes, please do take a quick moment To give us a rating and review Uh, It goes a long way in helping spread the show far and wide Um, If you do want to give personal feedback uh, Drop me an email, sam at hoopsfix.com If you don't mind uh, giving feedback in public um, On Twitter, Facebook Snapchat, Instagram, YouTube Wherever, at hoopsfix Is the handle, you can find us there I would love to hear from you, I try and respond to every single comment that we receive. Um, and of course, uh, maybe give it a screenshot. Um, if you're listening on your, on your iPhone right now, screenshot your screen and, and share it on your Instagram stories and tag Who's Fix. We'll give it a repost uh, and it helps uh, grow the audience. So yeah, if you could do that, it would be hugely appreciated. Um, I hope to hear from you soon. And that's enough from me. Here is this week's show with me and Roger Hosanna. Roger, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is um, an interview I've, I've wanted to do for a long time, and it uh, really excites me because of the fact that my two passions are basketball and business, and it's something that you know, based on what you've done in the past, is you've nailed it. Um, and so I kind of wanted to explore that journey and, and sort, and sort of, of
0: don't know about nailed it, but <laughs> tried it.
1: We can uh, sort of dig into the. Dig into the details. Um, so, I guess before we get into the into the Hosanna Sportswear brand, uh, I guess your background, starting with your your sort of basketball career, I, I didn't even realise that you'd got a scholarship to the States before. I spoke to your brother this mm-hmm. morning. Um, so, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about sort of your playing days and and kind of uh, how you first fell in love with the game?
0: So, um, I was actually uh, a son of a soldier. We we grew up in Germany, and uh, my dad was an outstanding athlete. He uh, was a British Army champion. And we lived in uh, Germany most of my formative years, so didn't actually start living in England until literally the last few months of primary school. Um, and I came back to uh, came back to England at the time. I was an outstanding footballer. I was going to sign for on youth forms for Schalke 04, which is one of the top Bundesliga teams. And uh, came back to England, uh, played football in the wintertime and uh, did uh, athletics in the summertime. And then I went to school in Mitcham, um, and uh, the school. Teacher was obsessed with the Harlem Globetrotters, which was just bizarre back in time. You've got to think this is the late seventies, and he literally had basketball on the curriculum. And so, um, being an athletic child, I was you know decent hand-eye coordination and was able to bounce a ball well as uh, kicking a ball and everything else. So, just really found something interesting. Um, Started playing a bit of basketball and. uh, somebody said to me, oh, you're too small to be basketball. And my father, fortunately, said, yeah, brought me up with the main mentality and the mindset, don't ever let anybody tell you you can't do anything in life. So uh, that literally was, um, set me on the path to playing basketball. And I was supposed to go, I was, fortunately I was blessed with, um, with a brain. I was supposed to go to Dulwich College on a scholarship and uh, I turned that down because I wanted to go to Eastfields, which um, at the time was one of the few schools that, um, that played basketball as well and I went to Eastfields High School with Kevin Hibbs, who's still very close to me and my friends to this day. Uh, He was a coach at Eastfields, and he will tell people, he said, said, at my wedding, he said, uh, you know, I cost this man a fortune, basically, because I stopped him from playing football. I said, look, you need to uh, make a choice between basketball and football. So at the age of sort of 14, um, when I joined Eastfields Middle School, I started playing um, um, basketball over football. And we had a fantastic basketball program. We were national champions. um, And I grew up with the likes of Richard Scantlebury. Um, You know, uh, his brother, and Rich and Pete. Pete went to the school as well. And we were best friends. And our team was, um, I mean, we had our starting five, four of our starting five. Um, In fact, all of our starting five went on scholarships um, to America. We were affiliated to the Kingston Basketball Program, which at the time was the Glamour Program. Um, it was owned by super agent Dennis Roach, who looked after the likes of Glenn Hoddle, uh, Mark Hughes. This is just going back years and years. And so massive investment at the time in Kingston Basketball Club. So we used to be on the 152 bus from Mitchum, um, where we went to school into, uh, into, into Kingston, um, and really, really passionate about basketball. And There's a real kind of emerging subculture of basketball around South London and, and North London, so we were part of the South London a group of basketball players. Later it evolved into Brixton Basketball Club. Historically it was Crystal Palace. So it was Kingston, Brixton, Crystal Palace and we were all part of that sort of subculture. And at the end of, um, after sort of doing well in my um, first set of exams, um, I was on a basketball camp and uh, Kevin Campwell, who was affiliated um, to uh, Georgia Tech, um, he was one of the coaches. he's my coach on my camp team. Um, and the head of the camp was, um, was a legendary coach called Bobby Cremins who um, was like the coach of Georgia Tech, coach the likes of John Sally, Mark Price. He was at the camp and after the camp he said, oh, you know what, if you continue playing at this level, you've, you've got a good chance of getting a scholarship. So from that moment, I just literally just forgot about the books, so I went from having outstanding O levels to having just awful A levels because all I was obsessed with was just playing basketball and getting a scholarship. Luckily enough, I got a scholarship to, um, to South Carolina, so um I was supposed to go to high school and play with a guy called uh, James Munlin, who probably no one's heard of. But at the time, he was a seven-foot kid who was uh, at South Aiken High, and he was being recruited by every top program in the nation. I was supposed to play with him, bring him in as a point guard to feed him. And in the end, I I think I was slightly too old. So um, so I ended up going to USC Aiken, which was in the same town. Um, So it was a regional campus of the University of South Carolina program. People say, well, where is Aiken? Never heard of Aiken. So... Um, I say to people, it's the home of James Brown. Uh, James Brown had a mansion, still does have a mansion um, on the um, Aiken, Georgia Highway. Um, and the Fridge, if you remember, William Fridge, uh, R- William Frigerator Perry, who played for the Chicago Bears. Okay, yeah, yeah, I recognize yeah, that name. So the Fridge um, and his brother Michael Dean, they were basically both from Aiken. So I was in this sort of small town uh, in South Carolina, but my good friend Richard Scantonbury, he was at Coastal Carolina, which is now a Division One school. Um, so yeah, we were on scholarships back in the day, which was just, just bizarre, ridiculous. Anyway, my coach ultimately got fired, and then that kind of compromised my scholarship, so I, I left a year early, but went back to summer school to sort of finish up. And I came back to England at the time. I was um, signed to Kingston, so uh, I'd actually done an illegal deal. I was actually being paid by, um, by Kingston Basketball Club, by actually by Dennis Roach who at the time was the biggest football agent, so he was Johan Cruyff's agent, so he'd done this sort of side deal where, I think, I'll, I'll just talk for myself, but I was certainly getting money while I was at college, which would have made me ineligible, um, and I was getting free flights to and from. It was ridiculous, absolutely insane, but it kind of all led to me having a real insight into the business of sports and what was going on in sports. Um, anyway, I got back to, um, to Kingston, so I came back um, effectively two seasons early, um, and Kevin Cadle was a coach, and I uh, basically did a pre-season with him, and at the time, uh, Kingston was stacked. I mean, Steve Bontrager, Danny Davis, Martin Clark. We, I mean, the team was stacked, and I was just not going to play.
1: That um, was that when they were playing in Europe and stuff? Correct,
0: yeah. So w- Kingston was the glamour programme at the time, and I'd sort of come back, um, and I, was sitting, I would have been sitting behind seven or eight Americans. Um, and uh, my dad was advising me and he had a meeting with Cadle and Cadle said, look, you know, basically he's just not going to play. Um, so uh, it was, you know, it was brutal at the time and, um, and I'm like, oh, I'm out, I want to leave. So I actually transferred to, um, to Crystal Palace, who at the time was still a big club, but I transferred around the time that the money ran out um, and I transferred for the pricey sum of 500 pounds. It was ridiculous. It went to arbitration. Um, and this year I couldn't play. They were haggling over money. It was just, uh, five, yeah, in the end, 500 pounds. And I played at Crystal Palace. Um, and we were, I think at the time it was the Carlsberg League. And we were we were poor. We were dire. We were, but we had a really, really young team. Um, and we had some fantastic times. And um, I played, I think it was a couple of years, um, playing for Crystal Palace. And then I realised... There's no money in this, and so I didn't really want to get to sort of the end of my career having no money and starting sort of the real life. And so, uh, right place, right time. My major passions in life were sport, fashion, and music. Um, and um, I fortunately got an interview at the Burton Group um, at the time. Um, before they sort of demerged between Arcadia, which is um, Philip Green and uh, and and Debenhams, uh, the old Burton Group, I got an interview in the sports department. Had an interview on the Friday and started on the Monday, and that oh, was no. in um, that was in 90, July 1989. And so, literally, that set me on the path to where I am now. So I've always worked in the sports fashion business since then. Did you did
1: you stop playing basketball completely at that point?
0: So I was still playing, but it was a real struggle because um, aspiring to have a career. A professional career and then sort of playing sports and we trained in the in the evenings, um, and so I was constantly having to sort of rush from work to get to training and then in the end it was just it was too much of a compromise and so I was fortunate enough to be right place right time the whole licensed sports trend was about to start so it was the whole era of sort of um, you know um, NWA and sort of the affiliation with the LA kind of sports teams and the New York Yankees and all those logos. And how that evolved into licensed sports generally, and how that also evolved into football licensing. So, um, I was really knowledgeable about American sports, and so I kind of rose up through my, my professional ranks really, really quickly. So, I made the choice actually stop playing basketball properly um, and uh, just focus on my career. So, I still played, um, but you know, I was more focused on my career, which was obviously the sensible thing to do at the time. So,
1: so only, um you ended up being a buyer, right? Is that, Correct, Is, yeah. is that yeah. where you started? Like what was kind of your prog- 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 career progression
0: um, within? So I started as an administrator. Um, yeah. So literally the guy just basically writing the orders, doing all, all, all the basic stuff. Um, resented making tea, um, which um, just that at the time was just a real, you know, just that was me. I was just like, yeah. well, I don't drink tea, why am I making tea? So I was, you know, real some learnings sort of going into the sort of the professional world. But actually playing sports and playing sports to a high level, you're, you're generally pampered, aren't you? So it's going from that world to the real world. Um, but I was really, really blessed with having some really good mentors in, um, in, in the Burton Group. So John Picard, who is um, still one of my mentors to this day, and a guy called Richard Finch. Um, so I started on shoes, and I moved over very quickly to clothing, um, and within six months of sort of joining um, the Burton group I was like traveling here there and everywhere because I was so knowledgeable I was so passionate about sports I'm a bit of an anorak um so uh, you know level of detail was just ridiculous and so that was seen as a real asset and added real value to the organization so I rose up the career path very quickly within two years I was a buyer and I was traveling here there and everywhere very very quickly so essentially um the um, the product that was actually being put on the shelves in champion sport which at the time was the sports division of the Burton group and ultimately became the sports um, department of Debenhams was effectively all the clothing was pretty much me so I was like setting trends yeah
1: so what in for people that don't know that like, what exactly does a buyer do it's like you
0: decide what the clothes are gonna be that are in the stores that yeah, people buy yeah good question I mean I, I, I Prior to actually having the interview, I would never even have thought about that career path. I had no idea how product ended up in stores, um, but to varying degrees, and it's a really good question because the whole uh, nature and the art of buying and fashion has changed now with the emergence of the um, of the internet and the fact that everything is so immediate now. But back in the day, um, a full price buyer bought clothing ranges probably a maximum of four times a year around the seasons, spring, summer, autumn, winter. But in most cases, um, twice a year. But specific to sportswear, and this was all around the time that Nike, Adidas, um, Reebok were really exploding, was the whole timelines of actually the Futures program. So you were buying on really, really long lead times, having to massively invest in money up front. And you were effectively making decisions based on trend or knowledge on what product was gonna be in stores. So essentially, I would be traveling the world um, to pick up trends or to get an idea of what was emerging from a trend perspective. And at that time, I had no formal fashion training. I did some courses, but it was really just an instinct and just an awareness of the lifestyle because I I lived that lifestyle. And then being responsible for putting the product and the ranges in the stores that consumers would ultimately buy.
1: Wow. it's. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So when the when did the sort of thought first, do you remember the thought first start coming in your head of like, I want to do my own thing, I want to create my own brand?
0: I would say the summer of 92. Um, and it was. Uh, and I remember it was 92. I mean, at, at, up to that point, I was just um, happy to have a job, which was the next best thing to play in sport, was basically, um, like I said, really, really passionate about sport, fashion and music. So... I literally was getting free clothes, cheap clothes. Um, I was going to fashion shows, parties, whatever. Um, so really at that point, it was just more about, I just had a really, really nice job, really interesting job, getting paid really, really good money um, and living a good life. Um, but then in 1992, I spent three weeks in um, in Harlem. I remember it was, I'm pretty sure it was 92 because it was the year that one of my favorite movies came out, Boomerang. With, um, with Halle Berry and uh, Eddie Murphy. So I remember going to the movie theater in Harlem to watch Boomerang and we literally loved the movie so much we went back and we went back. So I was, I was in Harlem with, um, with uh, Matthew Ryder um, and, uh, and his brother. And so um, we literally, that um, three week period, I think it was, we were there for a, a long time um, and that summer was really around the time that there was a real explosion in sort of urban lifestyle. So, um, record labels, so you know, Puffy and Uptown music was was beginning to happen. There was fashion labels like you know, Fubu, and I, um, you know, Fat Farm with Russell Simmons. Um, Spike Lee was making movies. So we were literally um, we were in that lifestyle for three weeks, and I literally got at first hand I saw. Um, a really, really interesting element of the business evolving. And I thought this is really, really interesting. So I think that's when I first sort of got the bug around actually maybe doing something for myself. But at that time, it was just more of like, well, oh, I could do this, but do it with a kind of an English angle. Um, so I would I would pinpoint it to, to 1992 where, like I said, I hung, had one of the best summers of my life, hung out, in New York City and went to some fantastic parties and hung out with some really really cool people some of them are still some of my friends to this day um I'd say I could pinpoint it back to then
1: yeah and so then how did how did the idea evolve from there like from the initial idea in in the summer of 92 to you know when you ended up creating uh Hosanna which when did it first launch 1998 99 so I
0: actually um I left uh, Debenhams in 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 98 so so what happened was um a, a, a few things so we um at the time like i said the big trend was um was american sports so um and obviously one of the big american sports was was basketball so i was in and around um the emergence of that that trend um and then going to place you know going to all-star weekends going to super Bowls and stuff like that so from a business perspective i was working with Two licensing organizations, so IMG, one of the big sort of management companies, they had the rights to Major League Baseball. Um, and I was working with another group called Crossland Industries, who had the rights to like 60 odd American colleges, so all the big ones in Michigan, North Carolina, et cetera. So I was developing um, ranges um, for the stores for um, just really consulting um, with those um, organizations. Um, and then at the same time um, the football explosion happened so again it was in and around the the sort of the evolution of uh, the football league into the premier league and so I was working with a company called kick sportswear who were doing like the licensed t-shirts so all of those things were sort of happening while I was sort of making my way up the ladder Um, and um, I don't know I just you know I'm I'm not everybody's cup of tea I recognize that so I Literally, as you're working in a corporate entity, you, you're you dealing with all of the politics, and ultimately there was decision-makers who I just really just didn't have any respect for and were ultimately telling me to do things which I didn't agree with, and so um, that was becoming a bit of a personal challenge. Um, and so at some point I thought, oh, do you know, what? I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit. I'm probably going to go out and do something on my own. So really what happened then was, um, you know, Matthew... Um, Ryder and, and myself, we basically uh, we identified that in English basketball, uh, by then it was I think it was, it was the Budweiser League um, or the BBL. I lose track of time. There was this ridiculous rule where you could have literally have how many, however many imports that you wanted. So there were some really really talented kids who were just not getting the platform to play basketball in 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 uh, in the senior level in England. So there was, you know, some great young players were going away to college, coming back, there was no clear pathway. Um, so, around the time all of the other stuff I was talking about was happening, we had also identified that there was a real challenge in a sport that we were really passionate about. So, although we weren't playing at a high level, we were, you know, we would, we had the history, we'd sort of come through really good programs, um, but we were also in good careers, which we felt we could have an impact. So we just um, said, you know, literally just, devised sitting around dining room table at Matthew's house. We'd just talk and we said, oh, you know, we should just put on a basketball tournament. And I think at the time, the only tournament that was going on was, um, I think Joel Moore used to, he was a big player back then, Joel Moore used to have a tournament. And we were like, oh, we can yeah, put on a tournament. So um, so around the same period, Adidas were looking to get into basketball or to get back into basketball. So with my network in or my connections at work, um, I was basically, you know, hanging out with the Adidas executives and whatever. So um I sniffed that they wanted to sort of get into basketball. And so they came to me and they said, Oh, you know, do you know um, you know, could you help us find some players or do you know any events and whatever? So um around the time we're having the conversations, all of this was sort of going on in the background. So I said, Oh well, yeah, we're we're gonna put on a we're putting on an event in Brixton. So um so they basically gave us some sort of low key um support and we Put on the first rough and ready event. I think it was 96 um, and um, it was really low key but it was just just the quality of basketball and it was really focused around just young players. So it was uh, it was all English uh, under 19 under 25 and we really emphasized to these kids just go out and play with Flair but play um, with respect and just you know put on an, put on a show for your local community. Um, and at the time we said, that, you know, we'll if we ultimately make this, we didn't even think that it would grow to anything of any stature, but if it, if we can generate some money, we'll sort of give back to some sort of charities or, or organisations. So we were really trying to really give um, young British players um, an opportunity to have a platform. And so, yeah, it, there was an element of politics involved, but at the same time, just, um, do that, but also do that in the right way. So, um, you know, sport in so many ways has has yeah, got me to where I am today because in terms of sort of life skills that you can derive from playing sports, um, I was fortunate enough to have that experience, and a lot of kids don't. So, um, so that's how it started. We just said, you know, we'll, we'll put on this event um, and um, we'll see how it goes. And we were fortunate enough to get some support from Adidas. Um, and the Adidas execs came to the event and they loved it. And so, um, you know, (laughs) we went from basically just putting on this event to then the next year, um, we effectively um, got a load of sponsorship money. So, um, you know, Matthew and I are like, well, now we've got to step up to the plate because we've got this money and ultimately, you know, the last thing you want to be doing is getting the money and not delivering, which is kind of symptomatic of a lot of things that was wrong with British basketball. People were just, you know, taking money and not really doing the right things with the money so we got this sponsorship money from Adidas um and um when we were
1: talking about like figures are you able to share the figures so like from the first year what was their support like and then how did change it change into the second year
0: so the first year it was basically um it, it was just really kit and just covered our bills um the next year it was it, it, it was it was ridiculous we <laughs> went from from <laughs> literally having nothing basically, to probably having the best sponsorship deal of any organisation in British basketball. It was just... It was either the second year or the third year. I think it was the second year. In fact, the second year, I think we stepped up, but still substantial money. But I think thereafter, when they saw what we did the second year, it was just mad, to the point where, with the support that they gave us, we were able to just do ridiculous things like, you know... at the time, Hoops TV was the big thing. So we were able to do to film um, pre-event stuff. We were uh, really doing some interesting PR stuff. I mean, Sports Illustrated, Swimsuit Magazine, things yeah. like that. Just all of these sorts of things evolved out of that second year where we went from having a low-key event and we were only going to do it on one side, one court at uh, um, Brixton. And we got there early enough. And by then we realised that the hype, I mean, there was people, we walked through the door at like eight, nine in the morning. The event was starting at midday and there was people queuing. So all of a sudden we realised, you know what, we're not going to be able to accommodate people on one court. So we literally had to move from the one court into the middle court, which I think hadn't been done for a while because Brixton, if you know Brixton Rec, um, essentially they used to split it into two halves, but they had this centre center court. So we moved we literally moved into the bigger court to accommodate more people and then, before we knew it, the place was the place was packed. And so from there, Adidas were like, wow. And so at the time then I was sort of, like I said, speaking to these Adidas execs, they were rebranding, they were trying to get into basketball. They'd come to me and they said, oh, you know, um, can you sort of connect to some basketball players? So Steve Bucknell was the first player to play in the NBA. I started advising him, he was playing, I think he was playing at Iraklis um, in um, in Saloniki and um, Amici was playing at Panathinaikos. And so at the time basketball was on Sky and I literally was sort of doing the PR for Steve, having sort of negotiated this deal with Adidas. And so I remember this one game where Sky were broadcasting this game I was sitting at home and then this literally thing came across the screen and basically Sue Ashworth, who was the executive producer of the basketball, I'd sort of gotten to know her, and I said, "Look, can you just promote the fact that these two English guys were playing um, in the big, big league in Greece?" And they put the the, the 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 result across the screen. So I'm like, "Wow, this is me!" So all of these sorts of things were happening, and so um, it's insane. And so you know, literally from nowhere and from nothing, we created like the biggest thing in British basketball. I mean, it was okay. The, uh, the BBL were getting bigger crowds, but the BBL execs after year two, everybody was at Rough and Ready. To Everybody was there to see what was this big hype. So it was the hottest event. I mean, the party crowd came. I mean, I remember Richard Blackwood, meeting um, Richard Blackwood at the time. So Richard Blackwood, he of EastEnders now. He, at the time, I think had just done this big deal with Channel 4, so he was like the hot property. And he was literally calling me and basically saying, oh, you know, can I you know, like, be a part of uh, uh, Rough and Ready? So, remember, he'd just done this big deal. I went round to his house, and i was like Richard. I said, yeah, we can't pay you any money, da da da. But we can sort of. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. I just want to be a part of it. So, you know, people like Richard Blackwood, and you know, we had you know, Richie P, in fact, Freddie. Everybody on the music we had, PA's. It was, it was, it was ridiculous. It was the, it was the coolest thing of its sort. Um, Certainly in the UK and um, and I think at the time I don't, I don't know Q fifty four I don't know really if that was going at the time but it was certainly of its type it was the big event probably one of the biggest events basketball events in Europe at the time.
1: I mean, still when I speak to players, it's the event that everyone speaks the most fondly about, and I think it's just become a legendary. Well,
0: uh, we were like we were flying players in from we were flying people back from America. It's, we we literally had this. So yeah, so we got this sponsorship deal, but we were cute enough to justify why we needed this money, um, and qu- we made no money from from rough and ready. It was purely about just putting on this fantastic event. So I think we would appropriate that we needed X amount in in, um, in to allocated to. Uh, Plane fares, so we had guys flying back from. I mean, this is before Luar was the man. I mean, Adju Deng was was his his older brother was was the guy. We were flying back, you know, you know, players were were. I can't remember exactly how we did it, but we were able to support people, and that's how we sort of justified getting this this uh, sponsorship deal. So, um,
1: what were some of the legendary moments when you look back at Rough and Ready uh, that stick out in your mind of like you know highlights? Uh, that people remember and people talk about.
0: So, some of the things that stick out probably are probably the wrong things. I remember the I think it was this, the third year. There was a Somalian wedding the evening before, so we got there really really early to set up. So we couldn't get in there the, um, the day before, um, and this is when the event was on, only on 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 one day. So it was only on, going on the Sunday. I remember going getting there, and the place just stunk of like beer, and it was just awful, so literally just getting the venue ready was um, was one memory I had. I mean, as we evolved, we would basically, we moved to the weekend, we brought in management companies to sort of dress the venues and stuff like that. Um, but I would say, um, you know, in terms of outstanding moments, there was, um, you know, Yorick Williams' dunk competition um, was, was probably one of the standout moments. Um, you know some of the the south team with you know with the likes of Adju and you know, um, yeah, I'm trying to think where Luar fit in. You know, I more remember Adju at Rough and Ready than, than well, Luar
1: than was still like 15 years old. Luar was
0: Luar was a kid. It was it was Adju. It was Sean Gray. It was um, you know Andrew Sullivan was was still very young. So um, uh, there was just uh, the flare, um, the um, just the crowd, and it was just the whole vibe. It was just it was just different. Was you it a ticketed it. event? You paid on the door. Yeah, but uh, the um, one of the things I remember we used to debate was the um, was the cost because we were just slightly naive, I guess, in the early stages. We didn't want an empty venue, so we didn't want to charge too much. And so, effectively, one of the attractions of rough and ready was the fact it was great value for money because it was cheap. It was effectively nothing to get in. Yeah, and so we kept the pricing. Pretty, pretty consistent through the years, so um so the fact it was uh, we wanted to make sure it was a- accessible. It was a community event, and so you know you didn't want to price people out of the event so
1: did you ever have any kickback uh, from people about about having to pay for tickets and stuff because I feel like I feel like now one of the big issues is that people don't want to pay to play to watch basketball um, you know, and even with my own event every summer at Brixton. I always think about pricing you know i always think if we could if we could increase the prices it would make a big difference the only way that we break even every year is from selling the tickets if we don't sell the tickets it it runs at a loss Mm -hmm. um and i mean effectively our ticket prices are five pounds a head Mm -hmm. if you if you buy more than five at once, so everyone gets in groups. So it's basically £5 a head. If you'd buy several, it's £6 for under-18s, £8 for adults. So which is... It's pretty great, cheap.
0: Which is great value, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, but there's still... You know, I still get hit up for freebies and, you know, people, would, people don't want to pay. Like, what was the sort of the general consensus from, from the crowds back then? Was it ever an issue?
0: So even when... Even when the, the pricing was basically nothing, you would still get people trying to get in for nothing. Um, but I, I, I guess we... Because we created such a particular spirit, and people um for all of the even when it it mushroomed into something really big, people knew that essentially we were doing it for the right reason, and it wasn't um people knew it wasn't a money thing so um so generally people were people were good because the pricing was just always just exceptional value from that's not one thing I remember about was, was mm. people, but you always get people wanting. The biggest challenge was people wanting the free product because the product became so special um, that people wanted a free T-shirt or whatever, and that was part of the hype. Was that literally you had to be the very, very best to play in in that event, um, and so there was only a limited amount of products made, um, and um, you know, as a result of that, any kind of people, what it resulted in was people wanted people were volunteering to work in the event because you got. Didn't get paid, but you got some great gear. It was Adidas, so three stripes with the with the Rough and Ready logo. on was just uh, was just was just unique.
1: Was the NCAA eligibility stuff not as much of an issue back then? Because because now, if you're trying to fly fly guys back it, from college, it would be a it, problem. It was a huge issue. Oh, so it was a huge it issue. It
0: was yeah, it was. And so I'm just trying to think. How um, did you get around it? I'm just trying to think how how we got around it. I remember the well, I remember the first year of Rough and Ready. The uh, Adri was the MVP, and the family had just recently um, arrived in London. And um, part of my story is we basically gave them their first color television because uh, we. um, I've seen
1: the photos of the massive like TV that Yeah. yeah.
0: So 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 we were so as the as the event evolved, we were getting into dialogue around NCAA eligibility and stuff like that, but. Um, we you know, we knew we knew the system and we knew the regulations and we were very, very sensitive to it. So we did nothing to compromise anybody. So I can openly talk about this now because we did nothing illegal and ultimately we were effectively declining things and we were telling people you can't do that because you will potentially cause yourself a problem. So there's a bit of naivety. With, you're dealing with kids, to yeah. be honest. And, yeah. um, and even now, I look at, um when I see um all of the scandals in college basketball or whatever and, and I think well some there are some real shisty people around around kids now because ultimately the earlier you get into these kids the more chance you've got of looking after them down the road. But um some of the decisions that are being made by kids is that's down to naivety. And so we were very, very aware of um of of all of the kind of the problems that we had. We were affiliated to so I remember Bob Chappell was... Um, he basically used the event to scout players. He was the team manager for um, the World Student Games team, and we were regularly speaking to him. I remember sort of speaking to the NCAA in I think like Kansas or Missouri or something. There was all those sorts of dialogue going on. But we were... we we It wasn't hype. We knew the system, um, and we were well on top of everything. And I think that created a bit of jealousy, I guess, because, you know, you had... Unfortunately, you had some people who were like, well, who are these guys? What are they doing? They're outside the system. But we went to Governing Body, we went to um, you know, uh, BBL and whatever to kind of work with them early on, and they just laughed us out of call, okay. And we just got on with it, and we basically, as, as I said to you earlier, we were able to bring in a network of partners um, who were essentially outside of what was in established basketball, and so we, effectively, had, we created our own power base.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, a lot, lot of the stuff you've done, whether it was uh, Hosanna, the brand, or, or, you know, Rough and Ready and events and stuff, it, it did seem to be very external to the establishment, uh, the administration and stuff. Like, did you feel uh, there was, was it, I mean, did you feel anti-establishment? Did you feel like you were going up against these guys and it was kind of you versus them type thing? Or was it like, you know, you tried to work with them and they just weren't interested, they didn't appreciate what you were doing? Like,
0: They were haters, but bottom line they were haters we absolutely wanted to we 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 recognized that there was deficiencies um and we but we also recognized that well certainly from my perspective anything you do in basketball you need to be working under the remit and you need to have the support of the governing body that's just common sense so we reached out to people but you know when people are just just putting barriers in your way and it felt like unnecessarily putting barriers in your way to, to to kind of stop you doing what you're trying to do. You just you just get on with it. So we absolutely reached out to people from the very beginning. Um, didn't get their support, so got on with it. And then ultimately, um, you know, there was a bit of you know there a bit of red eye after that. People people didn't understand how we were doing it, where we were doing it legally. There was all those kind of negative things, which is unfortunately is. The reason why basketball, in my opinion, is in the state it's in now, there's too many self-interest groups. Um, you know, I think there's um, a lot of the um, the establishment are not in it for the right reason. They don't act in the interest of um, of the players. I mean, all stuff which has been said in the past and whatever is still. I mean, I've stepped out of the sport for a number of years. It's only recently now, as we've discussed, why I've, you actually see me around again. Um, and it hasn't changed. And uh, we had the massive opportunity around 2012 to really get this sport on track and give it a platform to lift off. And well, I ask you, has that happened? No. It's one of the recurring things I always ask people when there's
1: not a single person that thinks it's I mean, changed it's, anything. It's a joke.
0: It's, it's, it's gotten worse. I mean, literally, I would say there was, from a corporate um, perspective, we what we were doing in the mid-90s I'd say now is light years ahead of what's going on now.
1: Yeah, I mean it's crazy looking at all these magazines that you've bought in and stuff, and the appearances of of you know your brand and and rough and ready and stuff is just insane. That's the kind of coverage that you know the sport would kill for now.
0: And and, and to be honest, if um you know if you know, people know where I am and people you know while I haven't been around, um you know my brother is very high profile, um and he works very very closely with the establishment. Simon Hosanna, for those yeah. that don't know. Simon, yeah. No one's ever picked up the phone to me to um and he yeah, people speak to him and people say, Oh, you know, yeah, oh, you know, we really wish your brother would come back and Simon's like, Call him, you know, he'll listen. Yeah. Um It just hasn't happened. It
1: is insane. Like uh you know, we just spoke about the sort of the um the scale of, of kind of what you built with Rough and really like you know, how big would you say it became? In my research, one of the things that I dug up was a, a feature that Scoop Jackson had written for the NBA. It was on NBA.com, mm. and he had called it a Hood Corporate-sponsored, um, a Hood Corporate-sponsored uh, annual urban event um, every summer. The, the annual urban event of every summer. Uh, and like I said, it was clearly, you know, lighthead light years ahead of anything else that was going on and even still to this day if Mm. you were doing the things that you were doing now Mm. you're doing then now Mm. it would still be pretty impressive Mm. um you know what would you say about the sort of scale it reached and and how big it became
0: it it was it became so big that effectively you had nike and adidas scrapping for effectively title sponsor rights to the event that's how that's how big it that's how big it came so essentially there was this is before under armor Puma weren't really in basketball. So the, the two big brands in basketball effectively were bidding for for the rights to rough and Ready. That's how big it became and, and so it's interesting you mentioned Scoop. Scoop I met at a um trade show in um in Chicago and uh we uh, I think I went on the slam stand and just literally never met the guy before. We started talking, da 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 and then he talked about this event in uh, in London. He goes, "Oh yeah, tell me about this event in London." I'm like, "Yeah, it's, it's my event." So uh, so that's how we became sort of, sort of. our first met Scoop, and then we basically became good friends, and you know, went to All Star weekends together and, and stuff like that. But um, it, we created something so authentic, um, so different to anything else that was out there. We had, um, you know, we had big brands, um, the two big sports brand, the two big basketball footwear brands wanted to basically um, be affiliated with um, with, with Ruff and Ready and, and ultimately both brands at some point had title rights to rough and Ready.
1: How did you balance uh, staying true to the core of kind of what the event was about and then having the corporates involved and I guess you know what most people call selling out mm. um, you know was that a thought that went through your mind and kind of how, how did you perceive it?
0: It just it, it, it came down to negotiation ultimately we um, you know when you've got more than one entity bidding for something then you can you've just got a stronger bargaining tool and you a stronger hand to sort of leverage stuff so um ultimately we um we had creative control um and um yeah when you get um corporates involved that they you know they want they've not ever their own agendas but when they're putting down a check then you Recognize that they need to, there's no such thing as a freelance. They need to get something in return. But what they really were invested in was the authenticity. And we absolutely delivered that. Just down to, you know, I remember dialogue around oh, moving it to a bigger venue, moving it to Wembley. You know, the, the rough house is the home of, of rough and ready. And it, the event is going nowhere. So just literally as having the, yes, yeah, just being cute enough to recognize that. So if we'd have moved away from Brixton, then people could accuse you of selling out weather. But actually, by keeping it in, retaining it in in Brixton, and dealing with all of the policies you know how much of a nightmare that venue is to deal with, actually gave you, gave us absolute credibility, just the mere fact that we understood our marketplace, and we were true to what we were saying.
1: And the question that that everyone asks, um, before we move on to the the, the brand stuff, um, is why did it stop? You know, everyone was just like this, it was this amazing event that was happening every summer, that was the highlight of the summer, you know made massive contributions to british basketball culture and the game um and it ended so what what kind of happened at the end
0: so you know it yeah all good things sometimes do come to an end but it did end from my perspective it ended too too soon i ultimately for myself um i so going back to how i actually set the brand up and how it all evolved um you know in um in 1998, um, my good friend Adrian Cummins um, essentially, um, you know, dropped dead in my arms um, on a basketball court. Uh, 30 years of age, just r- ridiculous. And so, um, it was probably the turning point of my life. And so, at the time, I was um, a high flying buyer, um, fantastic job, gave me an opportunity to to do all of the things that I was doing in and around basketball, and you know, when you're on a cushy number, to actually make that jump into the entrepreneurial world on your own um, is, um, you know, is, is, it's a brave decision. And so um, I, by then I'd sort of, with the network that I developed and recognizing that there were some gaps in the marketplace and seeing what was going on in America with sort of urban lifestyle and urban fashion, I wanted to do my own thing, um, but, just really was scared to make the jump and wasn't really financially ready. Um, and Adrian's death basically t- changed my mindset and I'm like, you know what, actually, you know, I am had a, saved a lot of money, um, you know, I was looking at tomorrow and stuff like that and I thought, well, tomorrow may never come. So um, my mindset changed when Adrian died and I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna do this. And so, at the time, I was—I think it's was been too early. I had a high-profile Premier League footballer was supposed to come in with a concept where we'd actually start a shop um, in Brixton. Um, so I had um, a—I um, won't name him because in the end he didn't come up with his money. Um, and I had a um, a shop fitter um, was going to basically um, invest in the business, and he would do. We were going to come up with this really, really interesting retail store based on some of the things that we'd seen in New York, Um, and effectively I was gonna put up some of my money um, and basically run the business. And um, when um, the the dialogue was dragging, when Adrian died, I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna do this. Um, I pushed these guys to come up with the money, um, and um, John um, ultimately didn't come up with his money, so I basically, Said I'm gone. I'm going to do this on my own. So that was the backdrop. I literally was making a huge leap of faith into doing my own thing, um, and um, the other people involved in Rough and Ready were just doing it as a sideline. So we, yeah, you know, everybody wasn't on the same page. And I'm like, you know, I've, if I'm going to do Hosan, I'm going to do this with wholeheartedly. And I've got to go if you're not all on the same page. And so I basically stepped and got on with my own stuff. And so. Um, you know, so I, did
1: you leave Rough and Ready before the last tournament? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah Right. Yeah, yeah. So I. So it ran from '96 to 2002,
0: 2001, early 2000 So I, so I basically, I, when Rough and Ready, when Rough and Ready had Nike sponsoring, I wasn't involved by then. I, I, I walked. So I, I was, Rough and Ready when Adidas was involved. Okay. Yeah. And so, so, so when I left, but I left essentially to, to to start my own business
1: right okay and i mean so did you, you never actually got to the point where you could use rough and ready to promote hosanna we didn't um, yeah and, and, I, and i guess that was one of the things that you wanted to do correct
0: yeah in in hindsight in hindsight um you know that was that was one of the that was certainly one of my plans and um like i said from my perspective in, in setting up a brand, setting up a sports brand, because effectively I was going head-to-head with the big boys. And so um, to have a brand, I felt we needed to, if we didn't have the deep pockets to spend on marketing, we needed to effectively have a platform of events or some association with players or, or basketball or whatever. So that's why I set up these series of events, which became the Summer of Basketball, to effectively give the Hosanna brand a platform to market its product, um, and then I also had um, these licenses as well to give it sort of instant credibility So in a very short space of time, you know It went from being just an idea to being something that you could see visibly in stores. We were like You know we we had product <laughs> in stores. It was bizarre.
1: Yeah, I mean now when I think about it Like I remember going into Foot Locker in Brighton when I was 16 years old 17 years old Ridiculous. And buying Hosanna gear, um, and you know, I, did, I didn't fully know the, I didn't fully know the backstory and uh, and kind of what it was about. But I did know that you know, when I watched Street Workout at UK or you know these websites and sort of the the top English basketball players, that's we're, what they were wearing. wearing. The yeah, yeah it, um, was,
0: it was it was it was ridiculous. It was actually, but it was all it all evolved from obviously having a grounding in the sport. Which I remember, um, I remember one of the events I was doing and I was talking to one of the kids on the sideline and they basically said, the guy said to me, he goes, I didn't realise you played, I just thought you were some hustler on the side. And so a lot of people, because younger people, did not have known, they wouldn't have known me as a player. And so um, actually it, it really all evolved from having a grounding in the sport but spending that summer in 92 and then having really five years of literally travelling the world literally consuming a lifestyle and seeing what was going on um, and the potential and being able to execute it. So um, Rough and Ready was, you know, gave me a platform, it gave me a network. I mean, people who are buyers who I was speaking to, whatever, they, you know, oh, Rough and Ready, yeah. So people knew about, they knew about the content, they knew about the brand, there was a credibility. um, But it, ultimately, you still had to justify your shelf space, so we produced we produced a great product. We produced a product which has stood the test of time, and it um, was it was ahead of its time, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I said, you one of the one of the uh, so Mark Deeks, who's an NBA writer, t- tweeted me uh, just saying that um, he didn't have a question for you, but the shorts that you bought 15 years ago are still the same quality as they were when he first bought them, mm. um, and even now, you, you know, you bought in some samples, which I'll I'll show to the camera uh, later. But um, you bought in some samples, and you can just see that they're still top-notch um, you went the extra mile it's not going on Alibaba and finding the cheapest factory and and, and
0: that, that was as a result of my grounding so working in in Debenhams I effectively I started sourcing product. I've traveled to the Far East I have a sourcing network which is extensive and so the factories that were producing my products are producing product for some of the biggest brands in the world so I had a big brand mentality and ultimately um, I, with the formal ground and the background I had working in the industry, gave me a knowledge around QC control and size specs and all of those sorts of things. Which you know, people come to me now and like, I want to start my own label. I'm like, not not easy. And so, actually, the fact that something like I take that as a, an incredible compliment because um, that's what we aspire to do, um, and I think in many ways that we we, we delivered that. When you. When you
1: think of thought about sort of the the, the initial startup of the brand, coming up with a name, what it's going to represent, mm. you know, um, kind of what was the thought process around it, and how did you, or well, how did you come to to what it ended up being? That,
0: that, that's a really 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 interesting question because um, at the time, I so I went to a marketing company um, called the Renaissance, which bizarrely they were actually probably better known for throwing parties than <laughs> actually designing logos, but. Um, the guy who ran renaissance he um he put me in touch with a with a designer um and I gave him a brief so understanding um working in fashion you get to understand brands and so i now consult and i give advice to people about branding and so brands is about having a perspective a personality um people buy into brands because of the values brands have and ultimately the, the trust um so why do you spend more on a Nike product than you would on other products. So all of those sorts of things, the elements that effectively make a brand what it is and makes a brand um, popular and makes a brand, creates a demand for it and effectively generates an income is all built on effectively branding and actually what that brand stands for. So I essentially wanted um, to have a sports brand. Um, I wanted to have a sports brand which would be marketed around a particular culture and style. Uh, if you look at um, brands, most sports brands, if you look at their logos, there's a degree of motion in their logos. So if you look at the swoosh, if you look at the three stripes, they're leaning; they're not they're not vertical. Um, you look at the Puma logo; it's it's the form stripe is it has motion. So all of these were part of the brief that I gave to um, the designer. So actually, the Hosanna logo, effectively, it's the it's the arrowhead; it's the moving arrowhead. That's where the actual um, the inspiration came from, and then the actually exterior is the shape, an oval, could represent a ball or or a track or whatever. So all of those were part of the brief. But the interesting one was the name. Um, I wanted to effectively have a a name with five letters. Um, So initially, the name was Osana, um, and... um, Why five letters? Because at the time, I think it was around, I think it was around the emergence of mobile phones, like Nokia, and there was a lot of the really sexy logos or brands had five letters, and so i think i've been to some branding consultant or branding presentation and they said essentially the fewer letters the more the more popular it would be and so i literally said oh sana um and um
1: and that was still a, was that a play on your surname initially like i'm assuming that's what it was or is it
0: not it was a play on my surname but then um because actually doing it properly when you search for names you know the most names are protected and you've got you know you've got carpetbaggers now, literally just just, you know, just buying the rights to names or whatever. So it was ultimately a branding, so a, a, um, a trademark lawyer had advised me, he said, oh, a, a variation on your surname would work. So I thought, okay, that, that works. Um, so again, back in the 90s, it was through the college licensing group I was working with, their trademark lawyers, I was using them, and I said, look, I'm going to, at some point, going to be leaving to set up my own brand. Excuse me. And they basically... Um, they said, "Oh, um, you know, we'll do a search and everything else," and there was resistance from a French kids' clothing company called Ozona. It was ridiculous, okay. and so the lawyer who I still deal deal with today, this um basically, he said, "Oh, Roger," he said, um, "He said, yeah, you've already spent the best part of a couple of thousand pounds trying to trademark Osana, but he said ultimately you're never going to get a registered R, which I thought was really important to have." Uh, because you're going to get objections from this company in France doing zero around kids' clothing. But he said, add an H, and it will go through. And so, uh, okay. So I added the H, and literally, from there, it went through literally very, very quickly, and there it was. So the the, the brand became a registered trademark, and it's really, really important that if you're going to basically develop or try to develop a brand, you take care of those real fundamentals. A lot of people don't know because they just wouldn't know. Um, and so um, I've recently... Um, retrademarked all the names so all protected in all the key key territories um class 25 clothing and footwear all of that is p- protected still because you know people who say to me oh you know well you know why don't you bring it back and you know I'm, I'm actively having some dialogue around doing some stuff um but I'll do it under a license model so I've retrademarked all of the names and so that was really So you just retrademarked all of the hosanna names Yeah oh, interesting yeah, yeah so they 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 they're protected so um so I've, I've so there's a chance there could be some type of comeback. So, so, so if, in the early stages, in the early stages, I, um, I looked at a license model, and so effectively, with a license model, you give permission to companies who buy, pay for the rights to develop product in categories you not necessarily have the expertise in, and that's quite a standard way of developing a brand or a business. And so, um, but in the early stages, I literally just did it all myself. Um, but um, I've You know, I've just got, what you can't buy is history and heritage, and so all of the years and investment that was put in and done properly, because what ultimately forced the demise of the brand was the fact that, you know, the marketplace was polarizing around particular retailers, and it was either JDS at one end, or Sports Direct were pretty much gobbling up everybody else, and Sports Direct were more down the discount end, and so I wanted to protect the brand integrity, and I did not want to lower the value, compromise the value of the brand, and so ultimately, this brand has had no kind of trash around it at all. It's still perceived as something very credible because of the events it was associated with and ultimately the comment the gentleman made around the quality of the product. And so actually now, sometimes it takes a while for brands to actually reach their fulfillment. So um, so we've done the correct things in terms of protecting trademarks again and it's potentially something that we'll, we'll explore going forward. You mentioned there about the the initial
1: investment like how, how much did you put into it in the first place? And and you know, you said also that you were, you were, you know, you're going up against the big boys mm-hmm. Like was it a case of you know, when you when you went all in this isn't some little side hustle thing that I'm, you know, trying to sell a few t-shirts or whatever This is I want this to be a global, you know, multi-million billion pound brand like kind of yeah What was the mindset and what was the initial the initial startup costs?
0: so when um when Adrian died and the other guys didn't come up with their money, I remember the conversation, I'm like, look, I'm gonna do this, it's been dragging on now. And, um, you know, um, the footballer basically said, Um, and was, fine. Um, and then the shop fitter's like, well, if the footballer's not in, then I'm not in. And I said, oh, well, I'm, 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 I'm doing it, I'm gone. And so, I remember him looking me in the eye and he basically said, oh, you, you're a brave man. And so, um, ultimately, yeah, sometimes you gotta put your money where your mouth is. So I literally, I, I, I definitely remember going to HSBC with 50,000 pounds and they basically matched it. I had somebody in the bank, the um, the lo, the bank's loan guarantee scheme, so we started with a ton, 100,000 um, pounds, was the initial um, the initial investment to get the thing off the ground. Um, but easily, quarter of a mil. Yeah, because we, we, you know, I ultimately, I started the brand in 98 and I went into TK Maxx 10 years later so it was it was it was big money or a lot of my own money which actually in hindsight imagine what you could do with that level of money but you live and you learn don't you
1: so at its peak um how big did the brand become are you able to sort of share any figures in terms of turnover yeah, like st- so, staffing so, and so stuff like from,
0: that so from from nowhere we um we as i said I was you know I was it's quite quite strategic to get some licensing rights. So we basically took on the rights for Major League Baseball and the US colleges. And there was a retailer called All Sports, uh, which at the time was mainly it was primarily a northern based retailer. And um, the buyer um, or the, the buying director of All Sports was a big American sports fan, And we travelled the world in pre- when I was in my previous job, and uh, he saw an opportunity around American licensed sports. So. Um, I remember we got an order for twenty thousand New York Yankees caps out of nowhere, and I'm like, "Wow, now it's all right." Aspiring to have a brand, and it's all right wanting to kind of you know to to produce product and whatever. But then you gets into the real the real business skill of actually you know cash flow and all of those sorts of things. So um, I remember the best year we had, we were close to um, half a million turnover. Oh, wow. Yeah. So so that was really really early on. We based, but, but it was on the back of, um, if essentially having, um, you know, this big retailer, and you need distribution. Um, ultimately, you're slightly different now because you've got you know you're online and whatever. But without big retail partners, you effectively you're, yeah you're, you're pissing in the wind basically. So we got, um, we got all sports on board, and they were they were buying the um the Yankees products, and uh, so people are like hey, how did you have a Yankees license I remember I remember quite early on and this was just the mentality of British basketball so um, Chris Finch who was the you know the, the GB coach and um, he was close to um, the event manager for a lot of my events and um, and I was up in Sheffield and um, you probably know Andy Evans no yeah, right? yeah yeah
1: yeah sports have Sport yeah sponsor my event Shout yeah out to
0: ab- ab- absolutely so Remember being in uh, in in Andy's office, and Chris came in, and, um, and I had some samples, and I said, "Oh, yeah, take one of these." It was a it was a Michigan Wolverines. Um, it was like a dad hat, and I gave sample to to Chris, and I remember he said to me, "He goes, y- you know, you need permission to manufacture these." And that was the mentality of British basketball it was like everything's like on a hustle. And I'm like, "That's all right, cool." And so so literally, we had the rights to sixty American colleges. And we had the rights to so we were probably, um, you know one of the early people to be bringing in uh, Yankees caps. So the ultimately, the guy who blew up New Era was somebody I worked with, and we were definitely bringing in Yankees caps before New Era, even in this country, before Mitchell and Ness. Um, and I basically had uh, my company so I went to IM.G and I said, "Look, in return for all this free consultancy I'm gonna give you because I've got a job and I can't take any money from you. Down the line, I'm probably gonna do my own thing. Can we, in principle, have an agreement that you'll look at me favorably to get some kind of license agreements? And effectively, I got a Cooperstown license. So essentially, I got the rights to the throwback stuff. And this is before Mitchell and Ness even came out of all of their stuff. Um, we were basically, um, we were producing this product now. Mm having Cooperstown rights, there was still the NY Iconic logo was still in those rights. So I had Cooperstown rights, but was able to, to produce the NY logo. So from nowhere, we were basically producing it's insane. way ahead of our time. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I remember the first orders that we did. And fortunately, I went to, I was in good factories. So was supported by some, yeah, some a lot of people helped me on the way. Um, but... Sleepless nights when you're fi- financing twenty thousand caps when you're literally a startup, and they came in, they flew out the door. basically they bought some more stuff, and, and off we went. And it was around the same time that we basically, again, I think it was actually one of the. In fact, it was it was um, Otto Otto Van Betten was the um, he was the uh, I think it was the um, the, the buying director at Footlocker. I'd seen him on my travels um, and um, went to see um, Footlocker in um, um, I remember going to Utrecht and uh, catching the train to Vianen um, and sitting down with them and basically they bought but they bought unbranded basketball they they didn't take the license stuff So the stuff you would have bought was just Hosanna logo stuff but it was just great quality
1: Wow um oh, the, it's a slight off on a tangent but it's an interesting thing I'd like to ask you about is uh I always think like is there actually more benefit to having to someone who is who cares about basketball actually being on the inside as opposed to being on the outside? The fact that you were able to do all the things that you did um, and are doing, to me, it almost seems like it's because of the fact you had that very established career, you know, in corporate. Uh, you know, sometimes I think if my mission is to help British basketball reach its potential, mm. right now I'm trying to do it 100% independently. Mm. Well, maybe actually, if I went and worked for a Nike and got a job, you know, in their offices, in their marketing department or whatever, and was then responsible for budget and stuff. Great. Potentially, I could have a greater impact on the game here than right. I ever could as an independent. Correct. And with that that network and that relationship that you'd relationships that you'd build as a result of that. Yes. Where do you sit on that? Like, uh, yeah, do you think that, that that is a massive sort of key part of why basketball is also struggled? Is because we don't have people on the inside of these corporates that actually really care about basketball.
0: basketball is too too insular. There's too there's too many there's too many self interest groups who, um, I mean there, there's been some. Over time, there's been some, you know, there's been some good investment in basketball. I, I look at the heyday of, of, um, of British basketball when I was so when I was a, a kid, and we you had you know someone like Dennis Roach, football agent, so you know someone with a, a network around you know the world's game, and he saw the potential of basketball. I look at when um, the entertainment guys were involved in basketball, so Barry Marshall, martial arts, and, and the Towers. Um, and then you had, you know, Harvey Goldsmith and those guys over Ed Ed Simons over at the, the Leopards. So music people involved. And the sport was m- so much more professional then. Um, and so I believe that, you know, it does need outside expertise or people with it, with a knowledge and an experience outside of the industry and outside of the sport of basketball who can come in with a fresh set of eyes, can come in with proper business principles and, and expertise and management Whatever is, is, the on, is the only way forward.
1: And then, in terms of staffing for the brand, how how many did you get to a point where you had sort of multiple employees and offices?
0: Like how how did that work? Maximum less than ten people. And was was but they were working full time on it. They weren't working full. No, you didn't need it because essentially there was. um, I was sort of multi-skilled, and and you were full time obviously, and I I was full time. And then um, Tony from Bigfoot, um, he came in with some investments so it was effectively Tony and myself but then we uh we brought in sort of third-party designers so all the creative stuff we were sourcing the factories so you, you didn't you didn't because we didn't have a shop mm. essentially so the big investment really outside of actually Tony and myself was just really sort of the warehousing that was um but we we had essentially a fantastic creative team so the watchman agency um and i was would not have been able to do some of the creative things that um, that I was able to do without them so they invested in, in the business and, and Dean had his own business and he had his own staff so we were able to call on um, to call on so they had stuff.
1: equity in the business in return they provided the design and resource Correct. and stuff Correct. right Correct. okay because that's another part that clearly was that sort of separated it was the fact that you know the look and the feel of everything that you were doing the outputs the flyers you know the DVDs yeah. um, it was just different
0: you know And and so there's no way we would have been able to do that on just our own so we were able to bring in a, a corporate portfolio which was just uh, a, a, like I said at the time it was just Excuse me. Sec, second to none in basketball so PlayStation I mean the Sony corporation we literally had you know long-term agreements with PlayStation and they were putting down they were putting down big money um, so cash
1: when we talk about big money how, how much money are we
0: talking uh, big money, yeah, li- literally. So, so we effectively—I think we had PlayStation for at least three summers, and we were doing, we were doing three or four events, and so—and they would fund them all. They, they would be, they would, they took title, and so they were, they were putting down. It was, it was, it was tens of thousands of pounds. Yeah, and that's the only way that we were able to put on events of that quality because you know whatever anybody. Would say, the, the events were high quality events, not only from a, a product on the actual court itself. So in terms of the talent pools, but it wasn't always about the professional end. It was more around grassroots. But it was in great venues, dressed properly. Um, you know, everything was done. Was done. I had a, had a big brand mentality, but was only able to do that with the likes of PlayStation partnership. I mean we 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 worked for three years with Operation Trident, and so um they were putting down big money the REF who were at the time the biggest sponsor of youth basketball so um that 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 was the model we did, actually did you
1: have bigger sponsorship deals than the BBL and professional yeah. teams were having
0: yeah oh. but but we also we I mean look at the look at the some of the stuff that I've brought in today and some of the stuff that that I showed you that we were delivering um they 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 weren't doing this but but then at the same time you need money to deliver it don't you so it's uh you know it's it's the, um it's egg, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah so you, you said that there, there were two there were two things when you came up with a brand that you that you were focusing on, um, and its product placement and, and events. Uh which I mean I guess now is the equivalent of influencer marketing, really. Um so again, like way ahead of its time before the mm. social media days, like so you know, how were you approaching that and kind of in terms of your the events that you had going on? You know, we went through them before but obviously you had ballers the evening, you had Battle of the balls, you had the Pro Am, you had ballers in Brighton, you had Hoopfest, um I mean, the summer must have been a bit crazy.
0: Like, uh, it was fun. It was it was it was fun days. But but it's interesting. How do I get to that point? So, um, again, in, on my travels in the states, I um, I came across a guy called Chris Latimer, who probably a lot of people probably have never heard of. He had a company called The Streets, which was a marketing company, but it was urban marketing, and he basically was the king of product placement. So, Chris, at the time when I first met him, um, again early to mid-90s. He was working for a brand called AACA. Have you ever heard no. of it? AACA? AACA was the African American College Alliance. And basically what they did, was so around the period of the evolution of um, sports licensing, um, he, this brand, which was actually started by a guy called Mark Van Grek, um, a DC-based guy, and he recognised that some of the historical black colleges, so the likes of Morehouse, Spelman, Howard University, those sorts of schools, didn't have necessarily the investment and in the profile that some of the bigger institutions had. So he did a licensing agreement around um, the historical black colleges, and so Chris was his marketing guy. And Chris basically came in. If you look back to the early '90s, you would see videos with like all of these black American colleges, and he did the product placement. So he was placing that product in these videos. So it was around the evolution of you know uptown music and and sort of you know. The, some of the sort of the urban labels and, and, and the sort of the growth of you know um, the hip-hop labels and whatever. He was going around urban culture, urban lifestyle and placing products So giving people free product. They were in the videos in the magazines and whatever and that was blowing up the brand. So I saw the power of, of product placement um, and so um, the fact that I was actually manufacturing baseball caps was very, very cost effective if you get a cap on someone's head. So I remember... Remember being in Nike Town and running into Posh, basically, and Posh and Beckham were wearing my caps. I never actually got any pictures, but just literally, I thought I'd have like products in my bag, and I would sort of place with people, I was getting stuff on footballers, and you could see some of the some of the you know some of the the imagery that we created. So that was just really just the real key focus of our of our marketing was just to get some visibility um, on, on, on through through iconic people, but. The end of the day it was great product it was stylish it was fashionable and as a result of that they wore it so how really, much
1: stuff were you giving away for free every year
0: uh, so it was again so the model I looked at I looked at you know in terms of some of the big um, sports brands what percentage of their turnover would they sort of focus appropriate to marketing and I would say you know a disproportionately high amount um, so it, probably two or three percent of our turnover so we would I would say yeah we'd forecast what the sales would be and I just buy as you know, diff, buy as many samples. I used to buy too many samples and use the samples as as the giveaway, So we didn't really take it out of product lines. We just took it out of sampling. But it was it was still a high percentage um, would be against sampling or product placement, um, and the rest was against events.
1: And then the event side of things, um, you know, we just briefly spoke about the sort of the the level of sponsorship that you had like how were you able to get those uh, again is that lineup of sponsors as a result of your relationships from years in the game and just being able to hit just, people up
0: just the network yeah just really um uh just i guess i was a good salesman um but the um just being in that world and sort of you know and sort of socializing you can you kind of move in particular circles you're dealing with the same PR people, the same marketing companies, and whatever. So, between sort of Dean and, and myself, um, you know, the REF were investing in, in basketball. And so, Andy was a big fan of ours. Andy was effectively um, a sports serve. Andy was involved in Rough and Ready from the very beginning. So, when um, the REF moved into basketball, he introduced us to the REF, and basically they loved what we were doing. But we went back with some really added value stuff. So, doing like DVDs and stuff like that. We gave them real value for money. PlayStation was just a part of the network that, that we had. Um, but ultimately, we knew people, but we were able to, de- 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 to deliver a great product and great value. So while we were getting relatively big money for work for the, the stature that we had at the time, we were also giving people great value for what they were getting so actually sony's investment in us nothing compared to the say the tra- champions league or anything like that so um yeah it was it was it was fun times yeah
1: what uh you know you said that the turnover was you know at its peak half a million a year mm. when you're talking about profit margins and stuff were you able to take a lot of money out like how did that work
0: Literally everything, any any profit that was earned was was re, was any money was was reinvested back into the business. So I, I paid myself ne- next to nothing, um, so uh, we didn't we didn't live lav- lavishly. Um, we were we were building a brand, um, but yeah, unfortunately, when as I said, when we went from having an aspirational sports brand, but when the market was polarizing around these particular retailers. We then moved into teamwear, and the model was changing, so the turnover basically it, it, it decreased and ultimately flattened. And you know, and then coincided with twenty twelve and not getting any Olympic money. I am like, yeah, I am done. I've given this a, sh- a good shot. Can't go on forever, um, and that was the beginning of the end, I guess.
1: What what, what were you expecting for
0: the Olympics? Well, we were um, so we were basically. A key element of um, in England basketball's grass development at the time. So we, but you weren't working with them officially. Well, so by then, by the time, by the time I set the brand up, we effectively were. We we became more establishment. So we, if you look at the events that we did, we had the blessing of the governing body. So, okay. so we were able to use the England Basketball logo and just, you know, access the databases and stuff like that. And actually, it started with um, the ARIA Final Fours. So we became a partner at the ARIA Final Fours. Um, so, you know, Simon and his team were doing the presentation, we would have, um, you know, we would have a stand at the, um, at, at, at the events, but we just added some value to the events. Um, and we worked with them regarding sort of structure, and so we effectively we became part of their. Because there was no off season program, but yeah. we created a off season basketball program, and so they. It was through working with them that you know the World Student Games team came to our events and stuff like that. But um, quite early on, I realised that I was not really able to access any of the government funding because it was a. Um, you know, it was a commercial enterprise. Yeah, um, But then we restructured it and we started doing the events through a non-profit organization, so sporting goals were set up. Um, and then we did the usual things there, uh, awards for all, sort of sports match and stuff like that. Um, but, um, you know, there was some dialogue that was had around sort of our involvement in basketball and sort of scaling things up. And they've just never embraced, so I just thought, why should I continue spending my hard-earned money on English basketball when I know there's people who are basically, you know, benefiting from... Your work. Yeah. And not giving us anything in return. Mm. And it, you know, it coincided with, you know, by then I had a family and sort of, you know, my, my son started you know, kicking a ball and sort of you know, the time and energy that I was devoting to basketball in the past, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, and I just basically said, I'll start focusing on on him, investing in him, and ultimately, um, that's why I've been more around football than basketball the last few years. He's
1: a professional football player now?
0: He's a second year pro at Leeds, yeah. Okay, nice.
1: Um, I I did ask you before we start recording, you know, do you have any regrets, Uh, you know, so, so, do you think now if if you had carried it on kind of where it could be you know do you think it ever could have become profitable and uh, you know really successful big thing or or do you think that it just run its course and, and actually it had no hope of becoming a uh, you know big 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 corporate type entity
0: yeah I mean in in hindsight in hindsight you know is 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 a wonderful thing isn't it so we you know I was so precious about it that I just wanted premium I just wanted just sort of top end whatever now I look at the world that I'm in now and I'm more around sort of value and price and so um, actually yeah could I have maybe embraced some of the other retailers and actually created sort of diffusion brands or sort of you know taken things down at a peg or two and actually that probably would have given us a bit more longevity I mean the plan was always or my vision was always that one of the big guys would buy us out um, and actually moving and so yeah so actually positioning it purely as a premium brand was a mistake in hindsight if we were able to maybe widen our appeal mm. but that would have taken time effort and money as well so um, so no so no, no regrets that actually doing what we did, Um, you know, I think the fact that, um, probably not a legacy, but we sort of created something which has stood the test of time, um, I think speaks for itself and and shouts volumes, Um, but ultimately it wasn't sustainable, so um, the fact it wasn't sustainable, yeah, it's disappointing
1: is uh so you can still actually buy hosana gear on bigfoot and uh it's on swish basketball as well there's some stuff is, like is it yeah 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 um must be some old stuff. yeah i was gonna now. say is that old stock or is there any production going on that
0: no, so so when i um so what happened in 2008 i ultimately i um we were supplying uh tk max um and um the president of tk max got wind of um the fact it was me, um, and he was a sales director when I was at, um, at the Burton Group, and he basically um, he said to my mentor John, who by then was a buying manager at TK Maxx, he said, "Oh, you know, if, you know, ask Roger if he wants to get a proper job." Um, so, um, <laughs> so it was just the timing was 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 right then, um, and so I went back into corporate world um just to really yeah, i guess get my eye in again replenish the coffers whatever and so i did an agreement with tony where he inherited the stock and had permission to develop the stock so i but i don't think there's been anything manufactured new in in recent times no
1: oh so it's just old stock that's still just shifting around
0: um good good question i mean i haven't i haven't looked um so i assume it's i assume it's the older stock because like i said i've i've re-licensed all of the I've done all of the trademarks and yeah, everything, yeah. so um, I would yeah, I'm pretty sure it's it's older stock. But as I said, I've I've, I've got a couple of samples with me today, yeah, which we'll are, go for it, yeah, we'll which are that. bagged up and and look as look as good as new. And because of understanding the marketplace and understanding about core lines and seasonal lines, most of the products we would have developed would have been core lines. Which I mean, aside apart from the fit, you know, everything now is skinny and, and tight and whatever. It's probably a bit big and baggy, but the quality will be will be still outstanding. Yeah.
1: in In terms of uh, all the events you you ran, uh, can you kind of give us a brief overview of each of each one that you were doing, um, and kind of what it was and, and what you were trying to do with it? Like the summer of basketball, was that mm. every was that just what you called every single summer?
0: So or was it, that a specific summer? No, it was it it, it it evolved because we were doing so many events. So we went from effectively so rough and ready when it started was just one event, and then when I when I left and set Hosanna up, we basically established some more events, um, like I said, to give us a platform to essentially market the brand, but we were marketing, when we were getting sponsors, you know, you can get more money if you've got more events, um, you can get more content, or you can get more footage if you've got more events. Um and
1: that's what you were doing, top ten plays of these things, you were doing highlight reels, like correct. stuff that, again, that was way before his time.
0: C- correct, but, but it was all again to justify some of the money that we were getting, but then also there was a there was a gap in the marketplace. so um obviously, you know, rough and ready was the first event that we did, and it was it was designed to showcase um you know the best talent at two age groups. um the um ballers' evenings was essentially um it was just pick up basketball, it was just um scrimmage basketball. it was just essentially. Um, you know one one evening a week at crystal palace and we would hire out the venue Um, at that point you know you just there was nowhere to have an organized run in the summertime so being a basketball player understanding the culture I thought yeah okay let me hire out crystal palace hire out the whole courts and create an event around it and then before you knew it literally it was a place to be in the summertime everybody would come on a weekly basis we had four courts um, and that ultimately, the concept of ballers evenings, which was around scrimmage basketball, we evolved into an event on Brighton Beach, which was one um, one day a year, it was the first weekend of August um, and uh, it was around the time street ball was becoming really, really popular um, and it's interesting now you look at free on free basketball, so again it was ahead of its time recognising where the importance of um, of positionless basketball and everything is going so that was um that if but that evolved the concept of ballers evenings evolved out of um the ballers events at crystal palace it was the same rules it was but it was just one court and we created this sort of beach basketball event uh, again you know just the sponsors that we we had for that saab cars i remember doing a saab long range shootout and and stuff like that but that was effectively scrimmage basketball, understanding the culture of what scrimmage basketball was about, and putting it into some structure, and packaging it, and market marketing it, and actually just generating some revenue around it. Um, but were these events profitable? Because I know what like
1: Crystal Palace is not cheap to hire, especially all four courts. If you're charging one pound fifty a hoopah to come play, like so, I mean, we, are you actually so we, making money. We
0: didn't lose money, but the, the objective wasn't was to market the product. Was to, was to market the product and to market the brand. So because we had, um, because we had the Portfolio of of, of sponsors in place the the events the events were paid for but some of them some of them some of them actually Some of them generated well they did ultimately generate um, money because we were selling we had the shops ultimately at the at the different events Um, And by then we had we had online and and stuff like that so we um, again like
1: even having a website then you was you know had online store It was way ahead of its time
0: it, it was yeah, yeah yeah, it was so um bat, a battle of the boards that was after i um left rough and ready um and then what was that so that was essentially um we created um again like a, a an off season all star game but then streetball.uk had evolved and so they were effectively doing their own thing so we basically had um you know Effectively there was two message boards around There was a street wall message board and there was the Hosanna message board So we just created this event short, but it didn't happen for very long around um UK versus Hosanna correct. Yeah, um, and then um, We had uh, hoop fest which was the um, which was a Christmas event, which was a youth tournament um, which was generally the a the, the Few days after um, after Christmas between Christmas and the New Year's and we essentially marketed that as the sort of the christmas event for the best under 18 teams in the country and everybody came and so remember Ellesmere port with the leadham girls just being yeah, Elsmere port versus harringay and um, and uh, and hackney uh fantastic event so again another opportunity to market the brand but again promoting um promote promoting youth basketball
1: I was going to say, uh, where does Streetballer Cut UK fit into kind of your story? Because you know you'd see video, video on there, and, and I feel like the culture back then was basically you guys and Streetballer Cut UK. Like, was there a, was there a rivalry? Was it a case of working together? Like,
0: um, there was initially there was a bit of a rivalry because um, they they came out of nowhere really with this sort of streetball culture. But a- again, it was. To me, the basketball is too many. It's too much. It's too insular. Too much infighting. Whatever. So, I think I'm not sure the timelines. But and one, we became a We they became our our shoe supplier for one year of one of the events through the distributor. They were working with Streetball, and so we just basically just created this event around. Um, there was perceived rivalry, but nah. I mean, right. I I actually have a lot of respect for what what Greg Tanner did and. Um, and ultimately but he was again he was ahead of his time because um you know all of the stuff he was doing and what he was doing with like the, the, what you're doing now with actually filming content and whatever we just we didn't have that level of expertise but then his was like a a part-time thing i was running a proper business so yeah
1: the uh <coughs> you know i've i've and I have mentioned this before, but I've toyed with the idea of wanting to go hard on merchandise and actually trying to build a proper brand mm. now, uh, like clothing brand and try and do kits and stuff like that. Um, I think your initial reaction was just so much hassle, don't bother with it. Like, mm. do you think it's possible? Like, do you think that whether it's you or someone else that wanted to come in and be like, you know what? I want to build a sort of basketball specific um, sportswear brand focused on the UK market. Uh, do you think it could be done? In a way that is financially viable, sustainable, um, to support uh, you know, like a real business if you want to call it that.
0: It's not impossible, but you would need you would need deep pockets. Yeah, because You think yeah. it requires a lot of investment yeah. up front. Well I've just I've just yeah. kind of highlighted to you what what we were what it was costing us and that was that was years ago. I think there is the internet would surely make it a bit easier these days. Absolutely. So what I think there is, there is absolutely an opportunity now for um you know basketball retail because you know if you want if you if you want basketball product where do you I mean where do you go and I ask you where do you go and buy basketball product from now you got Pro Direct and I mean I know kind of the politics behind that business and why they're involved in it but if you really are a basketball head is there a forum that you can actually um, go out and buy product um, on a regular basis? With the right kind of commercial appeal, now um, I believe there are some opportunities, and that's one of the things that you know. we yeah, so discuss. We're actively looking at doing, and we're going to launch later on. But it'd be a very, very different model. And actually, working in um, in TK Maxx and that whole concept of off-price and that channel. I mean, in the modern retail world, the successful elements now are at the real premium end around luxury, or at the value end. The bits in the middle. they're the ones that are struggling and they're the ones that are basically falling by the wayside so I think the opportunity is probably around the value end of the marketplace because basketball consumers just don't have the money really I don't think on a real scale so the opportunities that we're looking at now are around the value end of the product and that's purely as a result of me working in TKs and knowing that for many years I was getting all of the end of season product, all of the clearance lines, all of the um, you know the real deals because it was being left behind and TK Maxx was a forum to actually clear a lot of that old stock. So having now left TK Maxx, those same guys are calling me and they're basically, they need some solutions for their product and so hopefully um, we will offer them something. So there is absolutely opportunities around sports retail models, around basketball culture, but actually to... To go in and develop a brand and, um, and everything that entails with a brand, as I probably bored you to death chatting about over the last hour or so, it costs a lot of money. Um,
1: in in terms of what you're doing now, you said you know, you mentioned you, you you obviously left TK Maxx a couple of years ago, so you're you're back doing your own thing. Your new company is sixty six eight, is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, and so. Is that essentially what you're going to be doing? Is is taking product line, basketball product line, um, and offering it to the UK market? Like, what is the plan?
0: So, so I act as, um, so I, I consult now for um, for some big brands. Um, so um, we work with. Um, so I do what I do what I did at, at TK Maxx. Essentially, uh, brands who have challenging stock lines or stock opportunities don't really want the product ending up on a market store. So someone like a TK Maxx is perfect for them because of over 500 stores um, and the stock gets lost. But when I joined TK Maxx in 2008, there was 115 stores. And so actually managing a business of that scale is a lot easier than managing 500 stores. So they're not the most straightforward people to deal with anymore. And actually different buyers have different whims. So as a buyer with my network and my background, American sports was always a big tick for me. So I probably overbought on that product, but it did fantastically well. Um, And so now there seems to be, you know, there seems to be a regular supply of of American products, licensed sports, which maybe isn't being consumed by some of the established retailers. So one of the solutions that I'm looking at is actually developing a retail platform Um, around the private sales concept because the brands like I said they don't want their stuff basically um, you know promoted heavily undervalued so um, they either want it going in a retail forum which is going to disappear quickly or around private sales concepts so
1: um private sales concept would be what like a sort of private email list that you'd email and say oh we've yeah, got some product yeah. if you want to buy it then. yeah so
0: there's retailers like you know um you know von prive and all those sorts of retailers who effectively you you know you are part of you effectively you're mailed um you know special deals but you have to sign up to become a member so um the concept of private sales is a solution that i'm actively going to explore to um say to brands well actually here's an opportunity to sell directly to basketball consumers who we believe there is a demand for um, and it's not going to compromise your 200 pound boot that you're launching next month
1: perfect so we're coming up on time I just wanted to fire a few sort of uh, quicker quick questions at you um, as we wrap up Um, when you look back on on the journey with Hosanna and your sort of basketball specific journey uh, what would you say is the highlight and what would you say was the low light
0: Mm, good question the highlight um the highlight would be seeing my product in the lights of all sports and footlocker seeing literally stuff that had conceived um just ideas and seeing on the shelf alongside a premium brands at full price and selling selling out that's got to be the highlight yeah and the low light the low light um
1: Was there moments where you thought this is we're gonna we're gonna go under? Like, was there any moments like close like that where it was looking a bit hairy?
0: Um, No, because I got out before we actually. You know, I didn't go into. um, We didn't liquidate the company or or wasn't bankrupt or anything, but the um, uh, the low light, um, probably. the low light we always we we managed the financial side of the business so it was challenging there was many sleepless nights i'd probably say from an event perspective the low light was probably brighton beach when it was literally peeing down with rain it was monsoon season so you're thinking you know and it was the first year of brighton beach and your event's going to be a washout so that's probably how did you deal with that um, we um, we literally um, were ready to pack up yeah. um, and then we just got a break in the weather so we stayed put um, and three o'clock in the afternoon the sun came out and we just basically were able to actually execute something which still created some decent footage and gave us the confidence to go year, year after year. I toy
1: with doing an outdoor event every summer. I would love to do it because that is the essence of basketball. <laughs> but I just, then I think the, the amount of planning and effort that you're going to put into it to the, risk it potentially the, the, getting rained out. The
0: weather's out, uh, precarious. Yeah. yeah. And even, that so we always, we always went August and we got the latest available date in August and we were still, you know, we, risk. we were still at risk of the elements. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's, a t- it's a tough one. Yeah. Um, players, uh, you know, when you're talking about the the best players that you saw, or the or the best sort of basketball moments that you saw at your events, are there any that stand out? Um, kind of, you know, who who are the names? Who are the ones that impressed you the most? Your favourite players uh, and your favourite sort of basketball moments?
0: Um, so many, I'd say. Um, rough and ready, the early years, the Adidas years of rough and ready, and seeing um, just some of the images, seeing those huge, those huge iconic banners in the background and seeing you know the Ajus the sullivans um you know the, the the guys from up north um i'd say you know we we had every everybody of note professional players i mean you know some of the pro-am events and we'd have you know um you know steve bucknell's teams um you know when gb played hosanna gb world student games team and you know the lineup that night um some of the girls' basketball, some of the the, the leading girls, um, just literally everybody of note play over that period of time, that decade played played in our event. So, just happy to give something back and and create a platform to promote some of the outstanding talent that is clearly in English basketball.
1: If you were to do it all o- all over again, or you were to give advice to your younger self when they were, when they were mm. starting up, like what would you say? What advice would you give?
0: um stay absolutely true to your to 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 your ethos um and remain authentic um but um be realistic about your aspirations so um you know don't don't try and take on too much so have a have a proper business structure behind what you're doing so um you know we i think we did um we were probably trying to be too premium um, essentially now actually do you devalue what you're doing by basically taking it down a peg or two um, possibly but my late recent years in, in retail shows that there is the the world now wants a deal um, and value is everything um, so actually do you need to be premium probably not as premium as we were trying to be but at the same time if you're Kind of trying to um you know focus on performance values and and sort of you know excelling and everything else then you know y- you want proper gear, you want proper product you want proper shoes so um no i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't I wouldn't change anything that I did because ultimately i' um, it's made me the person I am and I'm doing what I'm doing now because of the experiences that i that I sort of um had over. That period of time, and um, and uh, I've fortunate to say I, I, I had a good run, I had a really good run. The
1: final thing, you just jigged my memory when you when you mentioned you talk about ethos and principles. One of the things that that's clear to me when I look back over the stuff was that um, you were have always been very much grounded in having, I don't know if you I don't know if it's like activist is the right word, but sort of corporate responsibility. Um, you know, a sort of social aspect. Mm. Whether it's working with Trident, whether it's doing anti knife knife crime mm. stuff. Um, you know, Rough and Ready was giving a lot to charity. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure the about page on on the website uh, had a lot about sort of responsibility to the community mm. and stuff. Um, uh, why was that such a big thing for you? Why was it not just about trying to make a bit? You know, make make some money or whatever. Um, why did you want to marry the two?
0: Um, I- it's a a genuine reflection of of who I am as a person. I was fortunate enough to be brought up by um you know two loving parents um who um you know really preach family values um and um stress the importance of education um and just remembering or recognizing never forget where you come from that's essentially who i am i um I still live in south london i still um hang out at some of the same regular places that I used to. I've, you know, I travel the world. Um, and um, I think it's important to give back and never to forget where you come from because you look at some of the nonsense that is going on in this world and you look at some of the futile things that are happening in this world and that's as a as a result, a consequence of a lack of fam- family values and a lack of upbringing, and a lack of education. And so I think it's important for me who's had the opportunities, Um, and the network that I have around me of lots of similarly minded people who now act as mentors and who want to give something back um, because it's important to know where you come from before you can really have any kind of idea of where you're going, absolutely
1: that's a, a perfect place to leave it um, I mean there was, there's so much stuff I've got on this list that I wanted to go into in, in detail but uh, we would definitely have to do a part two at some point in the future um, thanks for coming all the way East you said it's, uh, it's been a while since you've been here it's not, not yeah. somewhere you come too often but I really appreciate yeah. you making the journey um, and, and thank you so much yeah,
0: Sam thanks for having me, it's a pleasure you are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos, and more.